Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 5. We've taken a hiatus for a little while from that. We began the study of this letter um, in the beginning of the year, but then for the past few weeks as we were preparing for Easter and then Easter and then the graduation, graduates uh, and Ben speaking last week, uh, we've come back. Uh, we're coming back to it now today and for the next couple of weeks as we uh, are drawing to the end of this, of this letter. You're still looking, it's all right. Um, I'm going to lead us in prayer that God will speak to us. God can hear me even if pages are ruffling, so don't worry about that part. But join me if you're able. My Father, we come with great thanksgiving that you have not left us to wonder. You have not left us to uh, dream up concepts. Though you have made it clear there is a God, and we may understand certain aspects about you from the creation. You've spoken to us directly through your prophets, and through the apostles, and perfectly through your son, Jesus Christ. We commit ourselves to studying your word this time so that our minds may be renewed, for you've told us that our ways are not your ways, but they need to be. And so, Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, would be at work upon us and in us, that our minds might be opened, and our hearts might be willing to receive uh, the truth as you have revealed it, and even whatever it, light it might shine upon our lives, that we not fear exposing our brokenness or being out of accord, uh, for we know that Christ has fulfilled all of the law for us. But as you reveal to us your way, your will, your mind, may we find ourselves more in accord with it, that we would rest in you and trust in you and be directed by you, that we may enjoy you and you us. Father, we pray this to your praise and glory and for our good and for the good of those who are around us. In the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. This morning we begin our, our reading in verse 6 through verse 13. Hear the word of God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made God to be a liar. Because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, and whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. May God bless us and give us understanding from his holy word. A number of years ago, Northwest Airlines offered some unusual round-trip passages aboard one model of their planes. 
It was known as the Mystery Fair. For $59, people could get a round-trip ticket to spend a night at any number of destinations around the United States. They'd get on the plane, fly, spend the night, experience the, the city, get back on the plane, come back home. The only catch was you didn't know what your destination was until you got to the airport the day you were going to take your flight and, uh, and they gave you your tickets. That's what made it a mystery. So you coughed up your $59 and purchased a ticket to you have no idea where. It seems rather bizarre, but it caught on. The results of their, their campaign, they say, were, were tremendously successful. And they said in Indianapolis alone, they had over 1,500 people lined up to get tickets before they opened the ticket counter. But not all the results were great. As can be imagined, some of the people now finding their destinations decided that they were not exactly happy about where they were going. And apparently one man in particular who had recently relocated from St. Paul, Minnesota, purchased his ticket only to find out that his trip was to Minneapolis. He was heard throughout the airport yelling, I have a trip to the Mall of Americas. I'll take anything. Seems like a good idea, at least in one sense, because it does play to our, our sense of adventure. It allows us to experience things we might not have thought of before, places go where we might never have, have planned to go and experience some good things. And yet I think about it another way and, and realize it's, there's probably a good reason why we don't hear about this as an ongoing experiment. It's because our lives are already filled with so much uncertainty. Who needs to pay $59 to find an uncertain vacation spot? I mean, there's just so much that we don't know. There's so much that we anticipate, some that we hope for and are excited about whatever may unfold before us, some that cause us apprehension. We just don't know not only what is in the future, but what's around us. For many of us, that becomes an issue of concern. While I don't necessarily often find myself in agreement with uh, this particular politician, the present lieutenant governor of, of California, Gavin Newsom, used to also be the mayor of San Francisco, a few years ago while he was running uh, for mayor in San Francisco, he observed this, which I think is, is true. He said, the 21st century has begun as an era of uncertainty with a heightened focus on security and public safety. In other words, he was saying that whenever we see the need for increased security, whether it's at an airport, a school, churches, anywhere we go, we are reminded of the uncertainty of the culture in which we live. There's a need for reinforcement for our safety, for public safety. There's a need for, uh, for us to be protected. And it's because we just don't know. And there's a lot of dangerous things in that Lack of knowledge causes us to feel the weight of our uncertainty. Now, it's not just our age and our culture. Philosopher Blaise Pascal also noted this when he wrote, we sail within a vast sphere, ever drifting in uncertainty, driven from end to end. And while it's rather poetic in his philosophy, basically he's saying, look, we're on this celestial ball. And we have no control over the tides. We may effort, have effort, we may try to paddle, but in the end, we're driven one way or the other. We have no idea of where it is that we are going. We're drifting in our uncertainty. Uncertainty just reigns. 
Even Benjamin Franklin made the notation, famous notation saying, look, the only thing that is certain in life are death and taxes. But you also have to realize that men of the intellect of Pascal and Franklin, maybe Newsom, I don't want to give him credit for that, but that's possible. Uh, they know there's more that is certain than just death and taxes. John certainly is wanting us, God's wanting us to know, and John is, using, is speaking to us, helping us to understand that there are other things that are certain, that we can be certain about. And John makes the case in this passage that what we can know is a certainty of our future, of our eternal destination. So while we may be willing to pay $59 for a plane trip that we don't know where we're going, nobody wants to come to the end of their life or where they seem to be contemplating the end of their life and realize they have a ticket, but they don't know where they're going. We all want to know. We all want to have some certainty. And many of you here already have that. Others of you here have heard the words and find it difficult to appropriate the promises that God has made that you would have the joy and the comfort of the certainty, the assurance that he provides. And others are still searching for something that would provide not only meaning, but assurance for you that would give you that comfort. In this particular passage, John does just that. He sets the scene almost like a courtroom. And we see in here, he says, look, there's three who testify. And so you have almost a courtroom-type atmosphere as John makes the case here. And it's helpful for us to look at this passage as if we are in a courtroom listening to John as an attorney who is making his case. Because otherwise, this passage, sometimes the way that it flows together is, is very just feels very complicated, difficult to understand, and difficult to follow. But when we hear what John is saying as it's unfolded, as he's making his case, we see it really in, in two, two phases. First is as John comes and is calling his witnesses, and then second, as the attorney making a summation of his argument, we hear what God has promised through John, who is his representative. We begin with the, with the, uh, with the witnesses. You can imagine a judge saying, or, and all of us in one sense, are the judge in this way because each of us is making a determination in our own minds. Do we believe the testimony or do we not? So even if we're not judge, we are a jury, but we are the ones who are beneficiary. We are not the judge in the sense that whether we make the right choice or the wrong choice, that that's the final verdict. God, who is God, is ultimately the judge of all. But we experience the consequences of what our own judgment tells us. So just imagine a judge is saying, to John, do you have any witnesses? And John says, absolutely. And he says here in, in verse 6, in the second part of verse 6, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Now, he's saying the Spirit is the truth. The Spirit is the Spirit of God. And God himself is truth. And so therefore, it makes sense that if the Spirit of God, who is God, is going to testify, he's going to testify to the truth. And the Spirit is testifying here before us about all the promises and all the claims and all the instructions that John has given before, and particularly about the eternal life that is really the focus that we see in verse, uh, in verse 13 at the, uh, at the end of this passage or, or at the next portion of, of this class, uh, passage. But how does the Spirit testify? Well, the Spirit doesn't go where he could go, which is to say, I've been with the Son of God, in whom all life exists. From before the foundations of the earth, from 
there was no time from eternity and I will be with him to eternity. He just kind of focuses on things that we can get our, our minds around, things that we can grasp, historical events. Testify not only does he know what he's talking about, but seem to validate the claim that Christ is the one in whom we find life. He may begin with the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus says he's standing in the water, and we're told that the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And with that Spirit presence, the voice of God declaring, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Spirit's presence is the confirmation that Christ is the Son of God, the one who is promised. The Spirit may go on and testify after that that, the, uh, that not only was he there at the beginning, the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, but Jesus, the Spirit was present with Jesus throughout his ministry, and particularly we see the evidence of that through all the miracles that were performed, each of them testifying, the Spirit testifying to all who are aware of these miracles, this guy is no ordinary guy. This is the promised Messiah. He has power over life and death. And the miracles themselves testify to that fact. The Spirit testifies through the bodily resurrection of Christ. Paul says in the book of Romans that the Spirit declares him to be our Messiah through his bodily resurrection. The Spirit is testifying to all who will hear that through the resurrection, Christ is the promised risen Savior. The Spirit also confirms Jesus' promises in the book of Acts. After the resurrection, the disciples, wanting to know what most of us would want to know, are you now going to restore to us, we'll carry, our political party will run the show. We'll have the power. We'll set the agenda from now on. Are you going to restore that to the people of Israel now? And Jesus' response to them was said, look, don't get ahead of yourselves. Here's what you need to know. You're going to wait here in Jerusalem, at least for a time, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The day of Pentecost, the Spirit came down and filled not only the apostles, but all the believers who were gathered that day continues to be filling and indwelling within all believers to this day and will until the time of Christ's return. The Holy Spirit testifies through the life of Christ, through the events of Christ, through the resurrection of Christ, through the experience that those who have received Christ have already had that Jesus is the promised Messiah in whom there is life. The Spirit who is truth confirms that. And those who are believers, those who have been regenerated, made alive again to God. We hear that, we know. It's not that there's no room for doubt. We have doubt, we have reasonable doubts. Some of our doubts are caused because of our sin, we're hardened in heart and God has said one thing and it's just tough for us to embrace. But a lot of our doubts are simply because there are things we have not yet learned, things we have not yet experienced, or even in some cases, things that have not been revealed to us. And so we have questions that perhaps we cannot answer, and at those times, such doubting, wondering, uncertainty is not necessarily sin, but we are pointed back by the testimony of the Spirit of what we do know, and we need to deal with that testimony. 
The judge may then say to John, okay, next witness, because in Jewish court, even as in ours, to make a statement, to make a point, one person isn't sufficient. It requires at least two witnesses. And at that point, John essentially says, okay, next point, is I'm going to call Jesus Christ to the stand. Now, in one sense, you don't see that in the text, but it, it is presently here because that's who John is writing about in verse 6. This, Christ, Jesus Christ, is he who came by water and the blood. And then he says it out, out, straight out, Jesus Christ. And then he says there's three that testify. There's the Spirit, there's the water, and there is the blood. And so the Spirit, having already testified, Jesus Christ comes and he testifies essentially in two different ways. In agreement with the Holy Spirit, Christ testifies, and that's one of the things that, that John says. And he reemphasizes that, not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and all three agree. Now, in one sense, it's a very perplexing statement. Several Bible scholars and theologians have said this may be the most confusing statement in all of the New Testament. And there's a number of theories about what does it mean, water and the blood, and, you know, and then reemphasizing not just the water only, but water and the blood. And the one that makes the most sense to me is, is one that is really relatively simple when we consider the life of Christ and all that he represents. And it reminds us of the necessity both of, of Christ coming and becoming like us and the necessity of Christ's death and resurrection. The water and the blood symbolize both. Because it was necessary for Jesus to come and to become flesh and become exactly like us in every way in order for him to not only identify with us, us to identify with him, but for him to be able to ultimately take our place. We needed to know that the one who was walking this life and it was perfect in every way. Experienced every trial, every hardship, every difficulty, every temptation that we do that leads us to wander, to astray, or to take God for granted. He experienced every one of those things, just as we did, and yet he was able to do so without sin. But when Jesus came in the flesh, there came a time in his life when he was baptized. And his baptism was a way that he was not only marked as trusting in God the Father and marked as belonging to him, but it also identified him with us. And so therefore, he was testifying through the water that he was just like us, and he lived his life. The blood itself was also necessary because the blood is reflective of his crucifixion, his death, that was necessary for us to be pardoned for our, from our sin, to be set free from the guilt, the penalty, and even the misery. And so when this talking here about saying that he came and he testifies both in the water and the blood. It's just both of which are pointing to Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. And both are essential testimony. Even though both are powerful on their own right, they need to go together. That's why John, early on in verse 6, well, he sort of repeats himself in a way that doesn't make sense. At least when we think about it in the front end, he says, this is he who came by water and the blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but water and the blood. You read that the first time you think it, and look, who said otherwise? You know, you, you know, you're making an argument you hadn't made, except there were many people that were arguing in that day that John was writing this letter. He came by water. In other words, there was a man named Jesus who was baptized, who instructed us, who did some cool things, but they really didn't emphasize his death. And that hasn't died. Because not only those who struggle to believe, but even in many evangelical churches, the whole issue of Christ's death is minimized, at least in their instruction. Because we focus on what Jesus has taught us. We focus on how Jesus lived, as if he's the example. And by following his example, somehow we will become good enough that maybe we would relate to God. That undercuts the whole message of what Christianity 
the whole purpose of Christ's coming. No matter how well you model your life after Christ, if you fail at any one point, it's called sin. Sin must be dealt with. It must be paid for. So the whole idea of taking a Jesus in his life and in his teaching alone, and as if he came in order to give us good advice, become our life coach, as opposed to be the one who came to be the substitute to die the death that we should have died, to pay the penalty that we owed but cannot pay, diminishes the whole aspect. It makes us happy, contented, successful people who are still in our sins. But Christ Jesus, who came and was like us in every way, testimony of the water, also testimony of the blood, he did die for us. He paid the penalty we should, we should have to pay. And therefore, we are debt-free. And we are free. And he reconciled us to God the Father. And he has brought us his wisdom as well. Christ's testimony by water and the blood, both together, is absolutely essential because it's a difference between grace and cheap grace. Grace says, while you owe a debt, it has been paid. Cheap grace says, just do your best, and God will forgive. That's his job. Too often... We are hearing the nice, cheap grace message, which is a testimony of the water. And John is emphatic that we need to not only hear about the water of Christ's life and his teachings, but we need to know of the death because it's in his death that we have the hope that we are in need of. It's through his death that we have the assurance that we all so desperately desire. John brings the three. All three of these testify to essentially the same thing. That salvation is not only possible, but it is given as a gift of God to those who will simply believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. That's John's intention in verse 13, which I didn't read when I started. It says this, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. See, John's intent in giving these testimonies is that we would know. God's intent in having John write this is so that we would know to give us an assurance that many of us lack. Then John moves to his summation. After having the witnesses and their testimony, John in verse 9 then turns to anybody who is going to listen. And he says this, if we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is greater. In other words, in any court, when we make any decision, we listen to two, three, however many witnesses are brought. And we listen to people who we know that are just like us, and we hope that they're telling the truth to the best of their ability, but we know that they're limited in their understanding. We also know that they're bent toward their own self-preservation, and we hope that their integrity overrides that. But we listen to the testimony of people who are flawed and sometimes evil. We make our decisions based on what they tell us. And John's saying, look, if you make decisions based on the testimony of men, he's not saying that that's a wrong thing to do. He's just saying if you make the decisions based on that testimony and their testimony is good enough, God's testimony is even greater. And God has testified that we can have life if we have the Son. In one sense, God has already testified because on the stand already, as we understand through all the teachings of the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is God. Jesus Christ is God. God has testified through the both of them. That's the testimony that they give. 
God reaffirms, and John, just to make sure that we understand the testimony of God, goes on and tells us what that testimony is. He tells us whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony. Picking up in verse 11, he said, and this is the testimony that God gave us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. That's the broad perspective. Verse 12, here's how you know. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It's that simple. And as we take what he says in verse 13, we have by believing, we hear God's testimony, that salvation, eternal life, and fellowship with God is found through believing, trusting in Jesus Christ, what he did for us through his life, through his death, and the hope that we gain through his resurrection. That's God's testimony. And John says, to make sure that we understand the weight of how we're treating this testimony, he brings it up. Not only that we, we listen to the testimony of man, he's saying, particularly for anyone who believes there is a God, and even that this is God. If you hear God's testimony through the Spirit, through the Son, and even through God and the Father himself, and you still doubt. John says you're calling God a liar, or you're making God out to be a liar, as if his testimony is inadequate, half-truth, or even just flat-out falsehood. A few of us would want to do that. But in our worry and our anxiety, and our false or misplaced understanding of how we have eternal life, functionally, that's essentially what we do. When we do not cling to the promise that we have eternal life simply by believing that God sent his son, that in his son we have life if we have his son, we're making God out to be a liar. John makes his case. And in one sense, he lays it to rest. There is another sense in which some may rightly ask, what does it mean to have? I mean, now we get it. If you have the Son, you have eternal life. If you do not have the Son, you do not have eternal life. What does it mean to have? John Piper, if you're confused with that, John Piper seems to support you because he points out to the word to have can mean different things. It's, it's a different thing to say, I have $5 or I have a cold or I have a lawyer. All three things mean very different things. But if you think about that, Piper goes on and explains that while those are all very different, there is a commonality between them. To have means that whatever it is that you have does its thing for you. If you have $5, you can buy almost a gallon of gas. If you have a cold, it will do its thing, and it will give you a runny nose. Not that I want one, but that's what it does for us. If you have a lawyer, you have one that picks up your case, advocates for you, intercedes for you, and does things for you that you don't have the skill and expertise to do. They're all very different, but each is the same. To have Christ means that with Christ, if you have him, which comes 
as John says clearly in verse 13. So I think he's anticipating this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. To have Christ is to believe that he is who he says he is. He did what is testified that, he's, that he did, that he lived, he died, he rose again. And that you believe the promises that he made, that if you trust in him, you are forgiven, you are pardoned, you are free. There is no penalty, there is no guilt. You are declared righteous. You are reconciled in fellowship with God. In fact, you are made God's child and a joint heir with him. See, when you believe, which is to have Christ, Christ begins to do his thing, which is not only to enact forgiveness, but it's to give life and joy and freedom and assurance. John is speaking to a lot of us who are here today. He's struggling, he's teaching, he's talking to those who struggle to believe, not that Jesus is the promised Messiah, but struggle to believe and have the assurance because somehow we are inserting our own performance and lack thereof into the equation of salvation. And we realize that we are not worthy of this. We have not deserved this. We have not earned this. And we have messed it up even since we've received Christ. And we just don't feel saved. John put our feelings nowhere into this case. It was all objective reality. Christ who lived, who died, who rose again. If you believe in him and what he promised through his life, death, and resurrection, you have eternal life. You can trust your doubts or you can trust the promise of God. The problem is we so often are free to, we're more willing to trust our doubts. If I have a doubt, I want God to prove himself. I have a doubt, God says this, well, then one of us is going to have to prove himself because one of us apparently is not trustworthy. My doubts apparently are always trustworthy because I never doubt them. I always make God repeat himself and prove himself to me. Do you know how ridiculous that is? Why don't we ever doubt our doubts? I mean, our doubts come from lack of knowledge, lack of understanding, our own inability. That's where the doubts come from, but somehow they remain sovereign. God, who has proven himself as the creator, the sustainer, the provider, the um, redeemer, and the object of all affection, he makes a promise and we want him to prove himself. You and I who struggle with doubt, we need to sometimes talk to ourselves and say, why is my doubt so powerful? Why can't I doubt them and begin taking them apart and saying, okay, I have a doubt. What's behind the doubt? And inevitably, it's our own weakness. But when we have those doubts, we have to turn to the promise and God's promise is here. This is how you know. This is how you gain assurance. God is speaking to reaffirm those of you who already believe and have assurance. You are blessed. And part of me during the week thinking, oh, how am I going to talk to everybody who already understands this? You know, they'll be bored. I've heard it before. And it struck me to realize that here, that in Jesus Christ, you have not only salvation but assurance of salvation, if that does not reinforce joy and comfort in your life, 
I'm not sure what will. And we should get as tired of hearing in Jesus Christ, you have assurance of your salvation, about as tired as we get of hearing, I love you from your spouse, your parents, your children, anyone who is special to you. I mean, your five-year-old comes and says, I love you, Mom. I love you, Dad. Uh, you've said that before. I've heard it. I already know. I mean, who's going to do that? And it's the same in hearing from God because through this promise, he is saying in different words, I love you. You are mine. But this is also for those who are confused about hope for salvation at all. And you're looking for something. And in all the complexity of the instructions and God's blessing, overflowing of words to us, sometimes it's easy to lose the simplicity of what John wraps it up. If you are seeking peace, comfort, and assurance, it comes simply by believing Christ. That's it. It's that simple. It seems too simple to believe. But that's what it is. My prayer for all of us is that we would be blessed to believe. Whether it causes comfort and renewed rejoicing, whether it causes the comfort of renewed or new assurance, or whether it causes new life because you're believing it for the first time, my prayer for us is that God would grant us the grace to believe to have that assurance, to live with the joy and the peace and the comfort of that assurance. Let me pray. Father, as we come, we hear your word, and we thank you for it, both the complexity and detail to show us that this is not trivial, the intensity of the weight of the testimony, and the beauty and the simplicity of the promise that whoever has the Son has Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for the love that in him we see and experience and the hope that we have when we have him. Father, may he work in those who have him to do his thing. And each of us, may he bring us the joy, the comfort, and the assurance that we long for but so often eludes us. Help us to experience it. I pray in Christ. Amen. We come to this table and we are reminded.